Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the fifth part of a very in-depth interview with screenwriter Randall Johnson. And in this episode, we actually finally get on the topic of discussing the movie The Doors. I'm sure you're all wondering when that was going to happen, and well, it's happening. It's happening now, so... My apologies that it took so long to get there, but um, there were some really interesting things that we talked about in the first four um, parts of his interview. But for all of you who are fans of the Doors movie, this is worth checking out. One last bit of info. The next episode, episode 10, will actually mark the first time that we will be doing the correct format of the Film Trooper podcast show, where I ask specific questions in hopes of trying to find some techniques or tips to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Enough about me. Let's get on with this interview. And for those of you who have been following the Randall interviews for the last uh, four episodes, please enjoy this last one. And again, we'll probably have him back on at another time. But um, until then, enjoy. Thanks. Um, I interviewed Frank Capra. Uh, get out of here. You know, up, up in all places of Mammoth Lakes. Because huh. uh, I was up there with my old cross country team uh, yeah. my f- after my first summer at film school. And this is 19, this would have been summer 1979? Uh, uh, 1980. 80, 80. Summer 1980. And he had a, he had a place up there, in, uh, in, not in Mammoth, but at June Lake. And he and Walter Lance, the creator of Woody Woodpecker, yeah. were uh, judges or participants in the Mammoth Lakes Film Festival, this tiny little <laughs> rinky dink thing. And I, I was, I had a part-time job there that summer writing for the for the newspaper in Mammoth Lakes, and uh, I saw that he was going to be there, and I asked the editor. I said, "What you know, is, how what's Frank Capra doing up here?" And they said, "Oh, he's got a place up in June Lake or something." Yeah, I said, "Well, we sense. need to interview him." So um, I looked him up in the phone book. He was listed in the darn phone book. Get I called him. Here. I just called him up. I got his son on the phone. He said, "Oh yeah, I'll, I'll put you." In put you on with dad here in just a second and so he came in and i interviewed him but the sad thing was is i, I still didn't have a full appreciation for you know everything that capra had his done body work you know his yeah. full body of work but anyway you know wow capra orson wells seeing billy wilder there in, in hollywood that time and meeting david lean and um and have, of course, have worked for Spielberg and Jonathan Demme. I mean, these are all guys who've got Oscars for you know best director at one time or another, and you know, was, and Stone, of course, too. And it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty great. It's great having a okay you know, first time exposure to all these crazy exposure. It's amazing. So yeah. we, as a good story starts, we have a beginning. We know what your ordinary world is where you were born. Right. We have like the inciting incident, the mentors. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, these guys weren't mentors, but by the fact that they were just around, you know, inspired me. You, you could yeah. get a taste of it. Yeah, yeah you still had yeah. to have those. Sure. Then it comes like the next part of the story, which is like um, Joseph Campbell and uh, Christopher Volger um, describe like crossing the first threshold. You know, so now you've, you know, like a story comes up with the, you know, the, the main character has an or- their ordinary world. They have an inciting incident. Sometimes they're supposed to reject their calling before they enter, they cross the first threshold, the first challenge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, Blake Snyder of the Save the Cat um, screenwriting books calls right. it like the fun and games part where it's a lot of the fun stuff happens to our characters. So give me very briefly, because we have very a lot of detailed um, conversation in our, our previous podcast on mm-hmm. on Hollywood to Portland. Um, so you in film school, you leave film school, 
very quickly, I just want to give a highlight of yeah. like how you wrote a script, how like a, a former roommate um, got yeah. it. What went from like slaughter reality to dudes to how you got the Doors gig, and then we'll move right into the Doors. But um, just um, a quick overview. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, uh, I, I wrote three scripts. I mean, I. I Truly, I wanted to be a director, but, uh, you know, I, I ended up uh, because I, we had to finance our own projects at UCLA. I couldn't afford to do it. And so writing paper was cheap. And so I said, I'm just going to write. And that's what I did naturally anyway. So um, the efforts that I that I had at UCLA were terrible. I, I wrote three feature scripts, but they were all just awful. Um, one was kind of good, but it was just way too expensive. It never had been made. So when I got out of school, I, I had to make a conscious choice. I said, I got to write something commercial. And, and so that was my script, Slaughter Alley, which was a you know, haunted highway story. And it's just recently been optioned again. You know, so thir- you know. Awesome. Amazing. But, um, but uh, it, it, it came close to being made uh, you know, half a dozen times. It never has. And maybe now we're finally at the doorstep of, of it actually getting done. But at that time, um, it, it came close to getting made. It didn't, but uh, the script opened many, many doors for me. It got me an, uh, an agent uh, or a pair of agents, young agents at William Morris, uh, Rick Jaffa, and Carol Yumpkus. And Rick Jaffa now is a, uh, a very successful writer himself because he wrote the uh, the Planet of the Apes uh, revamp. Oh, that's right. Um, uh, you know, with Caesar and the the you know the whole franchise uh, revamping that whole franchise, uh, but. Um, uh, so, you know, the film business at that point was a, was a game of hype and you as a surfer, you know, you catch, <laughs> you know, you're waiting for those good waves and you keep, boom, you keep doing it, you keep, you know, do it and do it. And you finally, you, in the rhythm, you catch a wave and you're able to ride that thing for a long time. And so that was really kind of the way it was. Dudes got picked up and was being made um uh and it was in the it was sort of in the news and then uh the doors project came up and um through a series of circumstances and me being in the right place at the right time with the right take on the material i ended up with the job did you have an interview right with the producer i did i did that was set up by um the uh Production executor, the the uh, D girl at Columbia at that time was her name was Jude Schneider, and Jude um, actually happened to be um, dating my roommate from college, <laughs> which was uh, very right. very positive. And she asked when she got the assignment to you know to oversee the project, she asked him who should I get because she she didn't really know much about rock and roll or music or the Doors, and so she said who should I talk to about. You know, and and Mike, my 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 roommate, my former roommate, um, said, "Well, you got to talk to Randy because I had been, um, I was way into the music scene of L.A. at that time, and you know, making music videos as well, and very right, influenced right. by punk rock and all that stuff. So I had some street cred in terms of, uh, of music as well. So, so yes, I met the met the producer. Um, we met at a place up on Sunset and for lunch, and first. 10 minutes or so going nowhere i thought oh crap this meeting's going to be over very very shortly um because he was just you know we were just kind of 
you know, small talk, and I, he, I, he didn't seem to be very interested in anything that I had to say about Lawrence, I mean, um, about uh, uh, the doors. And then, and then I, I made the audacious uh, statement of comparing Jim Morrison to Lawrence of Arabia. Oh. And, and that, he yeah, piqued his, his interest. <laughs> yeah, he cocked his head, and he piqued his interest a bit. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, they were both guys of roughly about the same age, but 27 years old. They were swept up by the events of history, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the actual currents of history that was going on all around them. And they were charismatic, very well, very smart, very intelligent, very well-read guys um, who were swept up by events of history and then through circumstances were forced to, to kind of create a, a, a public... Uh, personage of themselves that was sometimes diametrically opposed to the personal mm-hmm. side of who they were. And more and more then as their careers went along, the discrepancy between their public self and their private self got further and further apart into the stretching or breaking point. And until, you know, for Lawrence, it was being captured by the Turks and uh, tortured, raped and tortured. And, um, and for Morrison, you know, it was, um, you know, it was uh, uh, drugs and other things that just he couldn't he couldn't hold it together. Yeah. You know, and so um, uh, so he found that very interesting. And uh, so what I thought was going to be a 15, 20 minute conversation ended up being uh, about two, two hours. And uh, from that, that thing, you know, let, it led on from there. How much did you have to prepare before the meeting? Like, well. In those days, there wasn't a whole lot you could do. I mean, you know, know the Doors music, which I did. Because there wasn't any books or biographies really. No, at the no, time. there weren't. There weren't. And this is pre-internet. Remember, exactly. so this is this is 80, 80, uh, 86, um, early eighty-six actually. And uh, there's no internet. There was only one biographical piece of information out on Morrison, which was, um, you know, the. Jerry Hopkins, Danny Sugarman authored book, No One Here Gets Out Alive, which I did not like um, because the journalist in me was highly skeptical of it because it wasn't footnoted. And it, the whole tone of it seemed to be very sensationalistic, and I, I just didn't—I I just didn't trust it. I didn't like it. So I found out, you know, I, I found as many articles as I could in in library archives and stuff like that. But, but. Um, I did share some of this uh, a, a pair of instructors that Jim had Jim and Manzarek had at UCLA and that, a guy named Lou Stuman and another guy named Ed Brokaw both, both of whom are dead now but uh, there was a little overlap there and I had str- you know in, in a sense some, some cred because I, uh, I had gone to UCLA film school so so yeah, there, there was a, there was a certain there was almost you'd call it pedigree with me to begin with um, right. that would have separated me from other candidates possibly, but my agent Rick at the time he said when he when he when I was going off to meet Sasha Harari the producer for that first encounter, he said look don't get your hopes up he said they're talking to some major heavy hitters you know for this for this project you know hmm. and I was 27 at the time you know I'm wow. half my age now wait and wasn't Morrison 27 yes he was look at that and and <laughs> Morrison drove a Mustang. I drove a Mustang. Morrison lived in West Hollywood. I lived in West Hollywood. Coincidence? Coincidence? I, I think, think not. not. 
<laughs> I love it. So we, um, if I recall correctly, again, you guys can check out the past podcasts at HollywoodToPortland.com or just go to um, the main website here and you'll be able to find it. Um, so what we did have in the past podcast is like we had this great story about you got the job. Yes. You got the gig and how, how you know, like insane that was. And then you had to do the hard work, which is a lot of research, a lot of research. Yeah. And then yeah. I think we're at the point where it's in the story is simply to say, what was it like writing the doors and um, the um, the research process? You don't have to go as in depth as yeah. you did at, like at the Women's um, uh, Film Festival, but... Um, you could do like an overview. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I, 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 it was up to me to do my own sleuthing. And so um, I, I, I interviewed the surviving doors, uh, you know, Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger and John Densmore. Um, and then, you know, from there branched out into, you know, to as many friends and acquaintances as I could. Um, by the way, Ray Manzarek has subsequently died from the time yeah, that, I remember uh, I saw know, that just headline. a couple couple months ago now. So that was quite a quite a shock. Ray was one of those guys where I thought was going to live to be a hundred years old. Actually, I just hmm. it was very uh, I, I was very very surprised to find that. What did he die? How, how old did he die? Uh, he seventy two. He, he seventy five. Seventy two. Yeah, seventy five. I think he was okay. actually and. Uh, uh, well, no, he was born in 1939, so, um, yeah, so 74, Okay, I guess, right? Um, but these guys have been used to telling the same stories for a long time, you know, and so it's always good to get, get it cross-referenced from other people who are not, you know, uh, interviewed as frequently. Uh, I sought out Paul, Roth, Paul Rothschild, who, who produced all their albums, and Paul was a, a goldmine of, of stuff. Um, he was sort of the elder statesman of the, and sometimes regarded as the fifth door. Uh, Paul was very helpful, but um, you know, I, I interviewed a whole cross section of people, and it was, and it was actually very overwhelming a lot of times because all the opinions were um, were conflicted. You know, it was I, I I kept um, being reminded of um, you know the story of the of the blind men touching the elephant. You know, um, every every person I interviewed felt like, oh, I knew Jim. I knew him better <laughs> than anyone else. And no, they had a tail or they had the tusk or the trunk or whatever. Uh, they didn't have the whole beast. They couldn't grasp quite the whole beast. You know, right, uh, right. it's very interesting. Um, but there were things that were consistent that came through. And one was Jim was the most uh, the smartest guy I ever met never saw him without a book in his hand you know I mean, that was that was really cool anyway um uh, what i do fi find fascinating sure. is that you wanted to be a journalist like a rock journalist like yeah. rolling stone and here you were doing the legwork the same exact mm -hmm. legwork as mm -hmm. if you were writing an article for rolling it's stone right but you had an opportunity to write the doors yeah so. yeah and you're right um I think my training as a reporter initially, even it was, though it was a little biweekly uh, paper, you know, in Southern California, that, and then, you know, subsequently I did some articles, you know, for a couple magazines and stuff, and I, I just knew how to do my research and, and ask smart questions, like you are tonight, Scott. I am? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scott, you are. Um, and so preparation and doing your homework was just, uh, you know, it was just what, what, something you had to do. Nowadays, I mean, you know, you can, you, you, 
the 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 tools and information available to you on the internet makes things so much easier but you still have to do you know plow through the 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 avalanche of of info you know to, to in, and and put together a you know a list of questions that are really going to make um make a difference or make a, make a count elicit the answers that you're you're hoping to get so yes um all those skills i think came into play and also the ability to sort of read people um um and anyway i remember the producer had told me take a couple of weeks to you know research and then go write the script and well you know after a couple of weeks i knew this was a much deeper story than I had originally intended. And so I ended up researching for several months and they finally started saying, you've got to start writing the script <laughs> of which I did, but uh, they didn't like the way that I structured it along with some other things that I had uncovered in interviews. And, uh, you know, I had, I had structured it where, you know, the opening scene is when Jim comes in on his 20, 27th birthday into the recording studio and is just simply going to record his poetry um, uh, without the doors, without any, you know, outside external influences. And I was always struck by this, this, this moment because it, it affected me in such a way where I felt like he knew he was dying or he hmm. knew he was, wasn't going to be around for long. And this was his way of putting down his last will and testament. And I found that just very poignant and interesting and dramatic. And it was what a great way to open the movie instead of a big sort of thing. But it's just almost kind of quiet and, and uh, introspective. Um, and, uh, and he was apparently, I mean, Paul Rothschild at this point said he was Orson Wellesian. In huh. in uh, in size, I think that's, that's right. a that's a bit of a hyperbole, but <laughs> but um, but I, I, anyway, I I I felt that this was this is where it needed to start and where it needed to end, and all the poetry, all the fractured bits of of work in between would be a kind of like a narrative thread for us throughout the whole story. And anyway, the I, I proceeded in this fashion, and the. Main producer um, s didn't like it, and he said we need to see the sexy. Oh, you he know, wanted the uh, rock animal, you know, the and myth, I, the legend, yeah, 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 and I said, you know, th but that's the story. That's the right. story. How did he go from this, or how did he get to be this from that? Yeah, you know, and no, 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 people don't want to see this, and I said, oh yes, they do. Right, and so we argued, and uh, anyway, he said, if you persist with this, we'll fire you, and I persisted with it, and they fired me. <laughs> after I wrote, after I wrote, wrote my first draft, so I was fired then about December of '86, and uh, immediate felt immediately felt like a total failure. Let, um, me, let me ask you something. Yeah. Oh, sorry, no, as I bumped no, this microphone. That's right. Give you a break here. Get your beer on. Um, so you, that moment, like you, like so we talked about it in a previous podcast that that. It's just that quiet sort of private elation you had when you had uh, dudes made. You know, your buddies came up, and I think they, you guys were at, like, some bridge or something. Or you, no, like you, I forgot. Like, you had some drink. But basically, it was a moment of just it's just, uh, it's just a silent sort of very cool, intimate, yeah. like, damn, I made it. We're doing this. We're making a film yeah. of my movie. Yeah. yeah. And then, then you have that made, and then you get um, 
then you get this opportunity to, to write the doors and it's happening. Like you are literally working on it. Um, the moment you got the job, was there like a sort of celebration within the agency or was it a big deal? Well, I wasn't sure I had it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it was funny. There was no official announcement. Um, Not like in trade papers. It was uh, just like, start working. No, after I had worked, after I'd had that lunch, you know, with, yeah. with Sasha Harari, the producer, um, they set it up for me to meet the other doors. Um, yeah. and, and we met at in an office of a guy named Tom Rickman, who was a wonderful screenwriter. Um, he wrote Coal Miner's Daughter and got the, mm. got the Oscar for that, I think. Um, Tom was a wonderful guy, and he uh, they had offered the project to him. It was my understanding, that they, but he didn't want to do it. Um, mm. He was smart enough to sort of stay out of that hornet's nest. Wow. But he agreed to be a mentor or hey. supervise whatever writer they got. There and go. so... Um, so he he was still kind of around. He was in the equation, you know. He was the you know uh, failsafe in a sense uh, for me. And we met in his office with the surviving doors and uh, and Sasha that time mm-hmm. for the first time. And I believe it was the second meeting. And 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 if that in that first meeting, Manzarek and I immediately started uh, chatting about UCLA because we had the same instructors. Right. You know? And so we started talking. Oh, is it Brokaw still there? God almighty, I can't believe it. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And did you do this? Did you add a gun smoke? And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of common right. stuff. They also really, Manzarek really dug the fact that I was uh, working with a lot of the punk bands, including uh, Black Flag and specifically Henry Rollins mm-hmm. because they felt that, and I, are, and I mentioned this when we met them, and I felt that the doors were much more punk rock uh, then mm-hmm. they were flower children, hippies, you know. Um, yeah. They were beatniks. They were beatniks in punk rock. Right. And they, dug, they dug that. So I think we were having a second meeting um, in Rickman's office. I, I think it took more than just one meeting. I, mean, I think we were having a second meeting, and they had sent out for sandwiches and lunch, and we were all having lunch in and just again talking about kind of ideas and stuff, and uh, and somebody, met, uh, one of the guys said Dinsmore or something, and, and Dinsmore had also said, you know, gee, could I get a job? Could, could I act in dudes? You that's know, right. You know, you know he right. asked me about that, and I said, sure. I got, a, I t- called Penelope, and she said, oh yeah, I know John. I'll give him his part in the movie, and so he's he's in the movie as well. So that was cool as well. I struck up points. He's with in the that. movie dudes as like a sheriff. Yeah, he's a sheriff. He gets blown away by le- <laughs> le- leaving, you know, our, our punk rock uh, lead singer of Fear. Right. So um, here we're getting the Sex Pistols on in the background. Perfect now. timing. Yeah, yeah, Johnny Rotten, right when we want him. Um, so. Um, what happened was us, one of the guys said, well, when you, you know, when you're writing this, wh- how do you see this or whatever? And was that, that, at that moment you looked around like, wait, am I actually on this? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what, what happened. And, and I, and I had, there was just that moment where I, I looked at Sasha and I double said, double take, double take. Yeah. <laughs> I said, do I have the job? And he says, and I remember him giving me this smile. And he says, yeah, you've got the job. <laughs> and, and, you know, I just, um, there's not, there's not, 
there's just it's an inexplicable feeling you know it's just the chills and the the you time feel, slow down. You just feel what? Oh, yeah. Just I mean, like just, wait, like this whole moment of like, what? Oh, it's just it was it was astonishing. Everything from like my agent at the time saying, you know, don't get your hopes up, you know, because you know they're talking yeah. to some heavy hitters to um, suddenly the you know the the you know knowing that I mean there's just enormous. I, I felt an enormous amount of of, of uh, an obligation to tell the story and tell it well. I he- I hear you. Know? So what you happens know, is that you you're in the second meetings and you realize they're kind of like you're on it, and you're in this surreal moment. When does it get back to your agent? When does it get back to your supporting uh, friends that are like, whoa, like the moment I got out of there, man. I tell you, I called. Um, see, I shot out of that meeting and. Uh, this is pre-cell phone, so um, I got home and immediately called called my agent, uh, called Rick, and uh, he was my primary guy at that point, I think. And I, I said I got the job, and he said. Hey, so he hadn't he, heard anything no, yet. No, no, no. I don't think so. I don't think so. So um, he got on the line then with Jude at uh, at Columbia, and they started, you know, negotiating and everything, and it happened very, very. What was quickly. your agent's reaction when you told him? I don't recall specifically. Just that he was he was um, he was very he was very happy. I remember I I remember what he told me was his reaction when he read Slaughter Alley. That I remember because he said he finished he finished reading the last page and he threw the script up in the air. He was so excited about it. He said it was just it was exactly what he was the kind of stuff that he was looking for to sell, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess um, and to be you know to do what he wanted to do at that at that at that point but yeah i mean it's 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 just an incredible feeling and then then it hits you shortly after that like holy shit now i've got to write this thing and i got (laughs) i got everybody in the world looking at me i felt the enormous amount of pressure wow you're 27 at the time 27 yeah you know and looking back now you know i mean i'm half that i was half my age yeah, and I would think, boy, if I I would have fought tooth and nail right now to get a gig like that. Um, yeah, and then thinking, you know, in, from this standpoint, they gave it to some twenty-seven-year-old kid. You know, I would be really <laughs> resentful of that. And I understand the how the kind of the age bias is, you know, in the in the business um, in in some ways, and yet. You know, I was I was clued in. I think I was very qualified to write it. Um, um, there were there were things now that I think I could have brought to it that I couldn't have brought to it then. Fascinating. But overall, it was you know I think it was a good it was a good choice, and I and I was fascinated by it because I, what I told them I said that you know we've never seen a rock and roll epic. This is a rock and roll epic. Yeah, I'm and trying to think of prior to any biopics that was has we, like had, that. we had we had lo- lo- the Buddy Holly story, we had nearly. La Bamba, we had the Hank Williams stuff and all that ah, stuff. But yeah. we hadn't really had that, a true sort of candy coated. A true yeah. kind of rock and roll yeah. you know, epic. And I was um you know, I'd been in in a lot of the you know, these shows and the punk and the punk rock thing and, and it was just all so visceral and so incredible. That um, you know, I, I felt very, very inspired and driven to communicate it. I, I especially mm-hmm. felt that in in dudes, and so it was the same thing on the doors. You know, um, it's funny. I, I was just down in L.A. a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
and I went down, uh, my host took me down into downtown LA, which I hadn't been down there in a number of years. And uh, we went to a breakfast place on Hewitt Street. And I double took, had to double take when he told me we were going to Hewitt Street. And I said, holy crap, that's where Al's bar was. Al's bar was this tiny little shithole <laughs> of a bar that um, had all this incredible music uh, uh, performed there back in the you know early early 80s and uh, um, uh, matter of fact the night I went to the Academy Awards we went there beforehand hmm. I think beforehand or I think it maybe afterwards we went there had a limousine drive us down there oh. too. and that was pretty fun we, we walked in in, in tuxes and in gowns and stuff and um, but I had I, I had to go find it again because I hadn't seen it in, you know, 30, 30 years. Um, and it had closed in the mid-90s or something like that. And sure enough, we found it. And it's a yoga studio now, you know. <laughs> and But that whole area downtown that had been like a no-man's land, a ghost town at night. Yeah. Very few things down there. Uh, the Atomic Cafe, Gorky's, um, you know, a, a couple other locations. Um you know, now it's just, it's thriving. There's all these condos and lofts and stuff wow. going on up there. It just bears no resemblance to the L.A. that I was at at that time. There are some parts in downtown L.A. where you're just like, you turn the wrong, down the wrong street, you're like, whoa, Night of the Living Dead, you know? It's just, oh, it's, yeah. You're just yeah. sketchy. And there's oh, like, it's, you know, no, there's, <laughs> you know, there's no, you know, I mean, it's no doubt, but. Anyhow, anyway. so you were down um, there. So anyway, yeah, so I did it and, um, you know, w went through it and we, we fought, um, quarreled quite a bit uh, sometimes with the with the producers on it. They they just didn't dig on my my whole approach to it, and uh, so they fired me. And what is what did that feel like, and, and how did your agent sort of re react to the? Firing? Well, you know, I um, I persisted, and I and uh, I I kind of made it my crusade. I felt very strongly in the research that I had done and was very empathetic with a lot of Jim's friends and closest associates, apart from the doors, who were looking to me to, in a sense, to really portray someone who was other than just a jerk or an asshole, you know? Mm. And uh, to show that there was, some, there was a great mind there. And I felt that very strongly. And, and so um, I took it upon myself. I said, this is, you know, the bullshit has just piled up too, too much about this guy. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tell the truth. Right. And, uh, um, you know, and, and so somewhat cavalierly, I'm, I for, you know, charged ahead. And, you know, they cut me down. They just said, nope, boom. And they fired me. And the, the producer took me out to, I believe, the same restaurant where he hired me <laughs> so there's certain poetic except it was a breakfast that he took me to and uh basically dropped the hammer you know on me and um he i said i will never forget this where he looked at me with that sort of the same kind of half smile or smirk and said uh listen you know um you know, you did you did pretty good work, but um, you know, it's just it, it's not what we want. And he said, "I advise you to move to England, to hang out with British playwrights. Move to London," he said, "to hang out with British playwrights because they know how to really write character." You know, <laughs> and uh, 
you know, and he said that. I mean, what do you say to that? Um, it, that, that was like the final kind of insulting comment to what had been a, just a parade of, of, of things where I had to fight, you know, a lot and explain myself and defend my research and this and that. So I just sort of laughed, you know, yeah. and just, uh, you know, through, and then I just was, fell into just a great depression. I was like, oh my God, I've blown the opportunity of a lifetime, you know, Right. really felt awful, but I was paid and actually, you know, because I didn't have a family, didn't own a house at the time I had this cash. So that's when I started my record label. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Now the timing yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and well, you I, had a creative I got, outlet. All right. I did. I did. And I, I did. was kind of like F you to the man. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Partly. And, but that was also, also really educational as well, because I suddenly I was the guy on the side of the equation writing the checks. Interesting. Yeah. And that gave me another, another perspective about things. And uh, so anyway, we put, I put out four albums and, you know, the first album we put out was a band that Ray Manzarek was very close to producing um, and was interested in, uh, in working with. What but were the four albums? A band called, uh, the first was um, by a band called the Fibonacci's who were arty farty and ready to party, according to the LA Weekly. And they were, they put out, uh, the album was called Civilization and its Discotheques and, uh, they had put out two EPs prior to this on on different labels, one on Index, another on uh, Escapes Me. Um, but they were they were really into the they were f- big big time favorites of the art scene in in LA. Um, very eclectic music, very hard to describe. Mm-hmm. Um, nightmare pop is, is partly one of the ways I think I described it at one point. Second album was a group, ironically, from Portland. Yeah. Uh, they were called Slack, and this, the album was called Bigger Than Breakfast, and they were a white a white funk band um, <laughs> that wasn't necessarily my music, but there was something about them that was so irresistible, and I and I was thought it was just in total contrast to what the Fibonacci's were about, um, and yet they liked each other, and I we we had a couple of bills where they were both on the same bill, and it was pretty fun, um, and they were they were guys from Reed, they were five five guys five six guys Reed College, huh? Yeah, Reed College. Probably went Reedies. to school. All, all readies. Um, no, it was a little later then. Yeah, a little. Yeah. A lot later. <laughs> um, and then um, third album was by um, the inimitable Del Rubio triplets, who were a set of real triplets. They were three sisters who were in their late 60s, early 70s at that time. They had platinum blonde hair, and they used to dress up in uh, white go-go boots and uh, miniskirts and go would go play nursing homes and hospitals and all around town uh, with their three Martin guitars. And they had a repertoire of like 500 songs or whatever. It was unbelievable. Wow. You know, and they were, they were in a sense, kind of idiot savants. Um, the Fibonacci's turned me on to them at first, and... Um, and they, they, they were strangely out of touch with the whole business. Uh, they used to stop by my house. I was running the label out of my garage, and they used to pull up in their station wagon and come in in their, in their outfits, and they said, we've been listening to the radio. How come we don't hear our songs on the, on the radio, on the <laughs> AM radio? And I was like, geez, girls, it doesn't quite work like that. Yeah, like I'm an independent yeah. label. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the last one was uh, a spoken word album, although Ray Manzarek plays on it, some um, by a guy named Michael C. Ford, who was a friend of Jim Morrison's and whom I interviewed for the doors and had become very good friends with 
and uh, he had put one album out on a label um, on the Minutemen's label who I had I'd done videos for the Minutemen um, um, his album Language Commando was on their um, New Alliance records um, and so I offered to put it out on my label you know the, his, his follow up album and so which yeah. he did and so um, so those were those were the four albums I threw a whole lot of money into it lost it all um, but it was a really fun experience and we had we threw a couple of really good record release parties that were really a lot of fun and I learned a lot and the engineer for that album for the, the slack and the uh, Fibonacci's albums a guy named Steve Sharp and Steve Sharp was a Portland native and when I moved up wow. here when I moved up here uh, a month after or just a couple weeks after actually my friend Stan Ridgway came up and performed at Mississippi Studios I love how you how, I love how you say like Stan Ridgway like your friend like came up like oh you know Stan Ridgway is like famous Walla Voodoo like very influential in that um I don't know what how you would describe it, but th- during that time, I I, remember, I grew up on listening yeah. to uh, you know Mexican radio. Right. I mean, that was like a quintessential Southern California underground song that yeah. was like yeah. uh, had yeah. a very unique sound yeah. and and style. But I love how you were just like not flippantly, but it was like yeah, well, you know my friend Stan Ridgeway. But it's like holy cow, like that that was pretty huge. <laughs> well, um, uh, the first time I saw the Fibonacci's, they opened for Wall of Voodoo at the mm. Roxy. And this is like 1981, I think. Um, and they made a huge impression on me then. And then um, I had reached out to them subsequently to because I was writing a, a, a screenplay about it was a murder mystery set in the music underground of L.A. at the time. And so I was making contact to all these bands that were really a big influence on me. So or were that I just wanted to hang out. I wanted to get soak up the milieu. So I reached out to the Minutemen, to the Fibonacci's, to um, a band called Savage Republic, some of whom were in the film school at UCLA and 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 another band called 100 Flowers. That was a great band. Um, and so the script panned out, but I had all these friends, I had all these relationships of all these bands that were really kind of uh, uh, dug pretty deep in the L.A. underground at that time. And so, um, you know, all these things kind of fit together in a strange yeah. way. But, but um, you know, hearing Walla Voodoo, Walla Voodoo is a very underestimated band and they don't get the credit. They, they, they're considered kind of an, a one-hit wonder because of Mexican radio. Right. But there are two full albums on um, IRS before Stan left and then um, Call of the West and Dark Continent and then their EP that had a uh, cover of, uh, Ring of Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire. That's right. That's... Um, it's outstanding music. It holds up pretty well, I think, mm-hmm. too, as well. Those were those are really great um, atmospheric albums. Oh my yeah, the, we can the, go the music, you know, and all that. So we can go on that, but and did, and 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 it was also close. And so I, I met Stan through the Fibonacci's, John Dentino, the keyboardist that uh, he introduced us, and then ironically, Stan after he left Walla Voodoo was managed by my future brother-in-law, which I didn't know about at the time. So it was very, very, you know, sort of in a sense, sort of inbred. Right. Um, it was just kind of inevitable that all of us were going to be friends and whatever. And Stan actually likes to take credit for introducing me to my wife. So yeah, you know what? <laughs> and we're right. and we're very we're we're very close. We're very close. That He's, is very, you know, very we're, close. And it's we're we're actually very similar in a lot in our approaches to creativity and stuff. We've had a lot of many long, long conversations about. 
Let me get back to no, that. that. Um, just so you yeah. get fired from the mm-hmm. doors. You're in the depression like anybody would in the right mind. And then you said, screw it. I'm starting this record label. Yeah. Sends you off. At what point are you brought back into the doors? And at what point is like Oliver Stone part of it? Well, um, as I mentioned, the fourth album we produced was by uh, a guy named Michael C. Ford, who mm-hmm. was a poet. And Michael um, had known Jim very well, and they used to do poetry readings together and stuff. And um, Manzarek used to play with Michael quite a bit. Um, whenever Michael would perform, Manzarek would back him up. And so they were performing one night um, over on Fairfax. It was, uh, I forget the venue. I think it was, I want, it was uh, Cafe Largo, I think is what it was. And, and I was there, and... Afterward, and this is this is about three years, three and a half years after I've been fired. Okay, three and, and a half years. Yeah, and good God! So, so you've been like, this is past me. I'm done with this. Oh yeah, you know, and and you hear about stuff. I I, I heard that they had, I mean, a, a lot of things happened, but they they had chewed up and spit out a couple other screenwriters, and then Oliver Stone was in the equation uh, because um, Madonna's um, Evita had fallen through that he was going to direct. So. He was looking around for something new, and then I heard, you know, he was going to be involved in The Doors. And then, so I'm, I'm at this show, and I see Michael, seeing Michael, and then Manzarek sees me afterwards, and he goes, hey, um, I'm glad I ran into you because um, um, Oliver Stone read your draft, read your script, and he wants to he, he wants to meet you. And you're and like, I, what? And, and I... Uh, yeah, what? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he said, no, truly. He said, I think you're going to get a call because he said, we had this pre-production meeting um, earlier in the week. And Oliver came in and said, well, I've read all the pre-. he said he, he had asked to read all the previous drafts of the script by the previous writers. And he came into this meeting and said, OK, I've read them all and I want to work off of Randall's. So he said, I think you're going to be getting a call from him. Wow. And I said, okay. And sure enough, within a week or two, I got a call. And so... Um, was it from him directly or his people? No, I'll tell you who it was. It was um, it was Nick Klainos, who was Bill Graham's attorney. And Bill Graham was still aboard as, as producer. Yeah, the famous, Nick, famous Bill Graham. Yeah, and Nick was... Bill didn't want to be involved in the development process, so Nick was kind of his voice in the equation. Mm-hmm. And he knew that Sasha, who had fired me, probably wouldn't be the guy to be calling me. So Nick mm-hmm. called and said, hey, 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 hey old I buddy, hey. Um, <laughs> how you doing? And I said, I'm fine. And he said, how would you like to meet Oliver Stone? Like, you like, already knew this from the... Well, I'd been tipped off about yeah. it by Ray, you right. know, and I so, so it didn't take me totally... It didn't blindside me. Right. And, and I said, well, um, you know, I mean, I've, um, I said, well, this is kind of weird, isn't it, Nick? He said, well, what's weird about it? I said, well, you guys fired me, like, you know, three... Oh, well, you know, look, you know, look, just meet with him, will you please? Will you just please <laughs> meet with him? And I said, well, why? You know, and he said, well, because he, he re- we really, we feel he needs. And so anyway, I pressed him a little bit more. And he finally, he said, look, Oliver's a little square when it comes to music. Oh, that's I said, hilarious. I said, really? 
um, and he said, well, look, he was over, he was in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you seem to have had a better understanding of music and, you know, all that. And he's, he's very interested in talking to you. They never so, really so apologized, right? They were, no, you no, were just kind of like, no, but never. you guys fired me, but no, you guys fired me. <laughs> no, no, there's no, no apology, nothing. It's Not like, in that business, I guess. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go and meet him. So I go and meet him and we were over at his offices there in, Vis- in uh, Venice and, uh, um, and, uh, I, I, you know, he came out and was very enthusiastic. We met for just really about 20 minutes, half hour mo- at most. And he immediately wanted to know um, some things about my research. Uh, you know, basically a lot of Jim's bedroom antics and stuff that uh-huh. I had um, had done some research on. And I... And I, he wanted to know who were the women that I had interviewed, you right, know, had slept right. with Jim. Because Pamela, you know, Jim's common-law wife, was, was dead and had died only a couple of years after he had from, from a heroin overdose. And, and I said, well, I have my sources, but I said, I don't want to, I can't reveal them. And he said, well, why not? And I said, because they spoke to me in trust and uh i promised that i would not reveal them publicly you know what they you know yeah yeah and so i mean it was just again back to the journalism thing i felt like these were people spoke to me in confidence and with me personally not to oliver not to anyone else and so did you also feel like because you've been fired already you're kind of like what the worst is gonna happen i'm gonna fire again so you're just like you know i might as well just uphold my ethics and well, a little bit, but I, I honestly, I just didn't know where I fit into the equation. Right. Would, did they want me back? Oh, so it, again, you nothing know, was official. It was like, nothing just was talk official. To just just talk, talk to him, you know. So Oliver was countering. He said, well, Danny Sugarman says, you know, he was, he was a sexual animal. You know, and I said, well, you know, Danny didn't fuck him. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, look, I mean, you know, he, Danny was 13 years old and you know, answering fan mail in their office and licking stamps, you know? I mean, uh, this is an entirely different take of what I have. Right. He found that rather amusing. Danny had ingratiated himself with, with Stone at this point and was, you know, really in on the project. Um, so I, you know, again, I just wasn't sure where, where I sort of fit in. So I kept my, my cards close to my chest. I just, you know, and I guess you could say I wouldn't play ball, but it just wasn't. I'm, but you I'm, had nothing to lose because I, they, you were already fired yeah. three and a half years ago. And I wasn't going to, you know, offer up, you know, the the content of these very intimate interviews that exactly. uh, that I had tracked down. I had to sleuth. I had to stake out places and Earn everything from trust. bars and, yeah. and earn trust and all of that. And, you know, that was just stuff that... Um, you know, Stone was trying to jump onto onto my back on, and I wasn't. I didn't want to do that. You know, um, yeah. um, so not until I got either an apology or money or you know was told where I fit into the situation, it never happened. So anyway, the 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 conversation just ended, you know, fairly quickly, and Stone just said, "Well, look, you know, um, I'm going to go and write my draft and make the movie." But he said, I'm going to be working off of your draft. He said, your, your, your screenplay's inspired me a great deal. And when it's all said and done, I think uh, the Writers Guild will be very good to you. So I said, like, well, okay. Okay, <laughs> cool. That and a dollar will get you, you know, something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I left. So you leave and what happened? I left. Um, he went off and made the movie. 
Um, I was never invited to the set, never in, informed of what was going on. But a very good friend of mine uh, that I'd gone to film school with, and actually a guy had shot one of my uh, Black Flag videos, um, a guy named Chris Lombardi, was camera operator for um, uh, Bob um, uh, Richardson, who shot it. Mm-hmm. So, who also uh, shot dudes, right? Dude, no? also shot yeah. dudes. He's you know he's Scorsese's guy now, right. uh, but Chris isn't working with him anymore. I mean that's that's a highly pre- Chris. Chris was burned out after working with Stone and those guys. He said yeah. it was just you know just too much. He just couldn't take it. Um, but Chris would occasionally give me a an update of what happened uh, or what was going, how it was going on the set, you know, and everything. Anyway, so they, they made make the movie. They they, they it's. They are you invited mo- to the premiere? Well, they make the movie, and then per protocol, um, they have to, the day principal photography ends, they have to send the shooting script to all the participating writers, uh, or all the writers who had worked on the script at one time or another, and then it's up to them to read the, read the shooting script, and then evaluate whether there is enough material in that of theirs to warrant a credit on it. So the script came out and the script came to me and uh, after, you know, in light of what Oliver said, here, here it comes in and it says uh, The Doors, you know, written by Oliver Stone, written and directed by Oliver Stone. And so I open up page one and it's verbatim like my, 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 my words, um, you know, my words, my, my descriptions, my everything, you know, and I turn the next page and a lot of it is mine a lot. So... There was a lot of my material in there, and so I felt, uh, you know, I wanted to um, uh, uh, let the pro- guild know. Pro- right. yeah, yeah, protest this or or say yes, exactly. Let the guild know. Um, well, that's the protocol, other right? They the, they ask you every look. Correct. If there's any correct. issues, you yes. submit it to the guild. That's right. Which I have to say that you know sometimes unions get a um, you know. A knock here and there, but that's uh, it's. This is a, an example of a way of it working. To it, it's a, it's it's an imperfect process. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. It's a subjective process uh, that strives to be objective, but you know it just can't be totally. But the al- the alternative is, and the guild has spent a lot of time considering what you know what alternatives, uh, you know. But the alternative is, is that we you know hand it over to the to the studios themselves and that's just you know folly there's no there's no there's no rhyme or reason to that because then politics and payment and everything else would just go you know would would come into play it just wouldn't wouldn't work so it's a way at least that we can retain some sort of control okay so the other two writers who had been hired and fired after me um bowed out and said there was nothing of their material in it so it came down to me, and um, so I formally submitted a, a thing where it told what do they the call guild, it a petition. Well, a, um, you, you, I forget exactly what it, what it actually is, but you basically inform the guild that say yes, I feel there's enough of my work in this in the shooting script to warrant a credit. So it goes into an arbitration, um, and what that means is that there's an anonymous committee of veteran screenwriters who will read all the drafts and compare them to the shooting draft and then they will award or judge credit uh, accordingly 
So this happened. Um, and actually, uh, you were allowed to prepare a statement. It's kind of like a little bit of like a de deposition or something in which you would, right. um, uh, you know, basically argue your, your, your lobby for yourself, and uh, which I did. And what I actually did, I, um, I was told later on that this was, it changed how the guild did things. It changed some of the rules. But what I did, I took the shooting script, and then I highlighted, literally highlighted with a highlighter pen. I went through five or six copies of it and doing the same thing, highlighted in bright yellow verbatim the passages of the shooting script that corresponded with Your script. Uh, with my script. Yeah. And then stuff that was paraphrased but still structurally and everything else, you know, I did with a kind of a indicated with a red margin or something like this or whatever. So I kind of color-coded it. How long did this was. process take you? Because obviously... It took a while, and I, I remember my agent's assistant and my attorney, we were all in there doing the, uh, you know, at the last at the deadline, going through Good creating God, you guys scripts. were like in a, a law yeah. firm. We were, we were. Um, but uh, much of the, you know, they were they were behind me. And uh, so we submitted it. And, and I have to say, it was pretty impressive at the time because you go through every page in there and there's something in there. Yeah, yeah. That, that wow, you know, it didn't was, allow. So what was your emotions like at this time? Well, it, like, there was a lot was of more matter of fact. You're like, oh, son of a bitch. This is no, I wasn't out for vengeance. You know, you can't, you know, yeah, yeah. enough time had had elapsed, you know, but I knew the stakes were kind of high. And and honestly, I mean, I felt. You're fighting for the truth. Like, hey, I was fighting for the truth. That's yeah. actually a very good, you know, it sounds a little pretentious, but um, I, I really felt that way. You know, I really did. And uh, um, so, so you and your team. And so we, we submitted the script and um, the, the arbitration committee convened and they read all the stuff. And then the word came out that the guild um, uh, awarded credit. For to for, for credit to read, um, uh, the doors written by J. Randall Johnson and Oliver Stone, mm. and, and first position was critical because it's implied that first position, which my name was, wrote it, contributed the major part of, yeah. uh, of the screenplay. So this did not settle or set well with the others. Um, so Stone countered counter-protested hmm. the decision, which threw it into a whole nother level, and which meant that both Stone and I had to go to the Guild to meet face-to-face -face with um, uh, another committee of season. You guys are in the same room? No, no. We oh, okay. did, they interview us separately. Good God, because it was, it was a, awkward. But it was a little <laughs> bit, oh yeah, it was a little bit like a tribunal or something yeah, yeah. like that. It was very, very thing. So, um... You know, um, I uh, I went down to the guild. This is when they were still on Beverly Boulevard, and I um, gave your disposition. Yeah, I was. You know, you told to show up at a certain time, so I got there, parked my car, and was coming around the front entrance to go enter the guild. And who's standing at the front door, or right outside, it is uh, the producer, Sasha Ferrari, and. Uh, just kind of like hanging out there, you know. <laughs> and, you know Sasha, and I go, Sasha, and he goes, hey, and I go, hey, and I hadn't seen him since he fired me and told me to move to England, you know. Right, right. Um, so I, I said, um, is Oliver is Oliver in there or is Oliver finished? You know, something to that effect. And he said, yeah, he's he's 
in there now. And I said, I, or he's been in there. And I said, well, I guess it's my turn now. And he goes, yeah. So I said, see you later. And so I went inside, announced myself at reception. A moment later, a young woman comes down from downstairs and approaches me and she pulls me aside and she said, um, Mr. Stone has withdrawn his protest. The credit stands. Hmm. And I went, holy wow. crap. Are you kidding me? And, uh, and she said, no, you know, it's it. so, I mean, I couldn't have been, wow, completely caught off guard on that one. So, um, so I go back outside and Sasha's still out there <laughs> and I go, you knew? He says, yeah, I knew. I said, why didn't you say something when I, before I went in? And he said, well, he said, I figured you had to find out for yourself. <laughs> okay. So I said, well, okay, I guess I'll see you at the movies, right? You know. So I start, started walking further down, you know, heading down Beverly, which at the time my agency, ICM, was on Beverly right, Boulevard. Right. Just a few, half a block down now. So I was going to go immediately go over and talk to my agent tell him what, you know, what happened. Because you have to understand that when you get awarded a credit, your stock in the industry goes up hugely. Yeah, yeah. And especially a high-profile movie like this. So there was a tremendous amount at stake here in terms of, you know, your, your cachet in the business. Um, and so this was big news, okay? And so you were like, I'm going to take this information, I'm going to go to my agency and let them know, and we get going here. Absolutely. And so I was down there, and so I'd just taken a few steps in the direction of my agency when I hear Randall, you know, from Sasha, and I go, oh, boy. I turn around, and he, Sasha's motioned me over, and so I come back to him, and he said, he said, um, I want you to consider something. And I said, what's that? And he said, uh, I want you to consider switching positions with Oliver. So that Oliver's credit, it, so the credit reads, written by Oliver Stone and J. Randall Johnson. Right. Um, and he said, uh, if you do this, I swear you will have a friend for life in Oliver. <laughs> you know, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, you know, you look at that and think, what? You know? Yeah. I mean, huh? Um, <laughs> so... Um, I said, oh, I, I said, gee, gee, that's, that's tough, Sasha. Um, you know, I'm going to have to think about this. You know, I really, uh, you know, you kind of caught me off guard here. I got to sleep on this. Okay, I'll let you know. I'll get back to you on that. So I took off. And, of course, um, I had no intention of doing that. So I went down to my agent, told my agent. We went out and celebrated at lunchtime. I get home. And the red light is blinking on my answering machine because <laughs> it is 1990, I wow, guess. Yeah. And um, I press it, and it's from the executive director of the Writers Guild, a wonderful guy named Brian Walton at the time. And he said, uh, Mr. Johnson, I understand that, uh, you know, you were, uh, or, or will you please call me, you know, immediately? I know you were here this morning. Will you please call me when you get in? Thought, oh, <laughs> crap. What's happened? They've decided that credit's not going to stand or right, something, right, something's right. happened. So I call the guild, and, he's, and Walton gets on the line. He says, um, I understand you were here this morning. And I said, yes. And he said, uh, would it be a terrible imposition to ask you to come back? Ugh. I said, okay, I'll be. I'll, he said, right away. He said, I'll clear my schedule. And I thought, okay. So I go, 
go back, back over there. Pull in. Go announce myself. They take me upstairs into Brian's office. Brian isn't there. He's down the hall or something. They said, just wait here. So I'm waiting in his office, and his office is has all these movie posters in it that are autographed by their authors and directors, right? Right. What what, do you see? What's the first one I see is Scarface, which was written by Oliver. Right. And says, um, Brian, don't fuck with me, (laughs) Oliver. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, he he and Oliver are close buds. You know, this is I'm I'm an ant. They're going to squish me, you know. So Brian comes in, sits down, and he said, um, I'm aware of what happened this morning. And I said, yeah. And he said, you have to understand that um, Oliver came in here and was fully aware and was fully ready to argue the decision. But um, he's not a he's not a stupid man. And he says, as I explain the rules to him and how the guild determines credits, I could see the wheels turning and he understood it and he agreed to back off. I said, OK. Um, so you're like, why am I here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I said, so why am I here? And he said, the reason I called you in is that there was a mention in the New York Post that Oliver via the Writers Guild was trying to screw you out of a out of a credit. Wow. How did on, that story on, get out? I, that's what he wanted to know. And I said, well, that's news to me. That's, I'm totally unaware of that. And he said, well, we wanted to know if you were indeed the individual, you know, that leaked that. Right, right. And I said, look, I respect the arbitration process. I know it's, you know, we keep it out of the public eye. And I, I said, that's just simply not my style. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. However, if I had chosen to do it, I wouldn't have gone to the New York Post. I would have gone to the New York Times. I would have gone to the Washington Post. I would have gone to the L.A. Times, <laughs> but not the New York Post. Right. You know, I said, that was not me. So he said, okay, then good. He said, the reason why we're sensitive about this right now is that the Guild had recently been sued by a disgruntled writer who had lost an arbitration. Hmm. And was therefore suing them, and he just Walton's just said we just can't afford another, you know, uh, another, black you know, guy. yeah, yeah. I just didn't want to do it. So I said okay. So he said the he said the does are you okay with the credit? And I said yeah, absolutely. And he and he said okay, then um, then enjoy it. You know, but was the film finished at this point? Well, or no, no, it had just it had been it had been shot, so it so was. It, it, they were okay. in they were in post. Okay. So then they go through the whole post project uh, process, and the question was, you know, when and if I was ever going to see it. And then I was told, no, Stone doesn't want to have a premiere, and didn't, you know. And so one night I'm I'm at home, you know, getting ready to you know getting the courage up to. Sh- to go right and I'm uh, as of habit I'm drinking coffee and watching MTV <laughs> you know like about 10 o'clock or so and uh, and I turn it on and and they're broadcasting live from the Roxy where they're having the post doors screening you know premiere party ah jeez I said you're kidding me you know and uh, I'm seeing all these people running through there and I'm like wow I guess you know I you know I guess I was persona non exista or grata not only grata but exista at that point 
So it was very interesting. So I never got invited to any screenings beforehand. And actually, um, the doors, uh, one of the doors managers, a guy named Rich Linnell, got me into um, a press screening of the, of the film beforehand. Mm. And I finally saw it. And it was very arresting to see that because so much was what I had written and so much was different. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's definitely Oliver's film and Oliver's vision, but Oliver went way over the top in my book for what I want, you know, wanted it to be. He got very literal about some things. A lot of the vision stuff. Like yeah, yeah. I wanted to keep that very ambiguous and really limited to. I mean, he really went kind of over the top with, his, with, with the shaman. Right, you right. know, there's only one point where I wrote the shaman into the whole thing, and it was right during a very hallucinogenic sequence that Jim had talked about the Indians on the highway and all this stuff. And anyhow, um, it was it was different. He Oliver had introduced the bald headed uh, uh, character of Mister Death to it. Um, and uh, I never wrote that guy into it, um, you know. And I, frankly, I never saw Jim as being that death obsessed. Oliver, really, that seemed to be his invention. And um, in fact, I felt that Jim was anything but a death obsessed. He was, um, he was actually a, in the tradition of a more of a Hemingway kind of a guy, a guy who was really trying to live life to its fullest at times, and a drunken Irish storyteller um you know full of blarney and uh and bluster to a degree but um ever entertaining and uh and i was just disappointed too that we never saw jim reading we never saw him in a room full of books and stuff which he probably always we always had so it was disappointing to me if oliver had just put a book in his hand instead of a fifth of whiskey in one or two scenes, yeah. I, I felt that would have given us a more favorable impression of him. And yet there are other points, you know, the, all the stuff in the desert and then a stu- some of the stuff in with um, at Andy Warhol's factory when they're back in, um, in New York for the first time. There was a lot of that that I felt that was very strong and was exactly, you know, w- what I was hoping. I wanted to, I, I wrote it in a very hallucinogenic, in a, in a very, to be a very visceral experience. Mm-hmm. And so Oliver really captured that in a lot of ways, you know, I was very proud of that. In was other that, ways it just, you yeah. know, it's a little, a little, not so subtle though. What was the, what was the best moment that you can, that you, of the whole Doors experience, what was the best moment of the whole? Of the movie or, or of, the, of, whole of the whole well, gosh, um, you know, it's a series of moments, but, you know, that, that initial moment we've already described it when I found out I had the job. I mean, that, that, was, was, that, cool. was, that, was, pretty, that was pretty great. Um, you know, I, I came out of the experience having so many, so many friends. You know, I, I really became very, very good friends and still am friends with a lot of Jim's friends and uh, the, the guys that were, you know. It's pretty you know. impressive. Yeah, and it was neat, you know. I mean, Manzarek and I stayed close. Right after Manzarek died, I, I went through a couple of his books that I had of his and <laughs> I came across a slip of paper that uh, um, Ray had, uh, had given me at one point. He said, uh, Randall, <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> oh, when you got y- fired, or um, no, or the, the, when the movie the, was the, made. The, the, when the movie was made, you well, know, you're you're a good guy. Because you know? he was, yeah. Because I mean, when I saw that film, I would think I was, you know, I think I just mentioned another podcast before, but it kind of, it kind of uh, alluded, it kind of made him look like a pain in the ass. 
like Ray, and I think he, I read somewhere he yeah. was very unhappy, like, whoa, no. whoa, whoa, what was that? And I don't know, um, I'm assuming based off your relationship with him, that's not what was in your script or direction. You well, know? Ray, Ray was a bit of a control freak, you mm-hmm. know. Um, Ray was, Ray's a very, Ray, I unfortunately have to speak of him in, in the past tense now, but Ray, yeah, Ray, Ray is no dummy. Uh, yeah. Ray got a, but, you know, Ray had been in the army before, mm. you know, the doors um, uh, and before school. Ray had also received a degree in economics from DePaul before he went to <laughs> film school. That, yeah. Ray knew the value of the dollar. And Ray, in many ways, is the guy who is responsible for keeping the flame, the dream alive. You know, um, he had it. He had it down, you know. Um, do you need to switch tapes here? No, no, no. Um, I just want to see what we're doing. Um, Go. So he he really, you know, I mean, uh, but um, he also, you know, after a few interviews with Ray, I kind of saw that he wasn't going to go too much farther. He knew a lot more than he would be willing to. Interesting. To go on record with. So you know. took that with him to the grave? I asked him at one point. Yeah, I, I asked him at one point. I remember this very well. I said, was Jim gay? <laughs> <laughs> and Ray was in the process of, uh, of uh, uh, drinking a beer at the time. And, um, and, uh, Did he do a spit he, take? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. You know, it's just a, just a minor little glitch. But I was like, and I knew that that was a question he just didn't get. And he didn't have a, the pat answer for it, you know. Wow. And so I tried to I tried to mix it up a little bit, but he wouldn't. He really wouldn't come, you know, come clean on that. And Jim wasn't gay. I don't think you know. I mean, Jim was. No, no. You know, what, but you know, he was bi or something or you know there. But I, I don't think it was. So, anyway, it was very interesting. Um, uh, so that was. That I mean, I, I, you know, there was just a, it was, I, I, it was a, it was really, really a tough experience at times. And it was an exhilarating experience. And when it was all said and done, I thought, you know, maybe I should write a book about, about this, write a oh, biography you should, on, you, you know, and I thought, no, nah, nobody wants to read them. You know, I don't another. know. And then, and guess what? And then about like, and then ensuing years, about four or five biographies of Morrison came out and um, you know but I still have all my uh, my interviews um, you know it's something and, worth um, thinking about it's, because it's something that I yeah because I think there's some some good stuff there yeah yeah there really were so anyway the final coda to all of this was that um, uh, I had seen it you know in a, in a, at a press screening and I went to see it again on the day the film opened and I with went like with a real audience or something with a real yeah. audience. And I went with a bunch of friends of mine um, in, in Century City at the one of the large theaters there. And uh, it was, you know, like on a Friday night, the Friday that it opened or whatever. And I was waiting outside for a girl that I was dating at the time. Who was who was a little running a little late, and she finally showed up, and we went we went and scampered inside, and I was going down the aisle to my seat that a, friends of mine had saved, and my roommate from college, Mike, who had mm-hmm. Petzold, who had uh, been dating the gal that was the production exec at, at or the D girl at Columbia, he came running up to me and he said, "Oliver's here." Yeah. 
at the, and pr- uh, the at the, 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 the general screening at yeah. the general screening the day it opened and uh, and I wasn't really surprised you know I, I said well you know I mean you know there's stories of him like yeah. you know cutting in the in the projection booth at the last you know 10 minutes before the film goes on you know it didn't seem like you guys had like let's say there's no blab, bad blood it was just him like I have a vision I'm doing this I'm doing that I mean because you never work with him directly that's, th- that's yeah. correct that's absolutely correct so I said, well, I, you know, I'm not surprised. And um, he said, well, aren't you going to go talk to him? And I, I said, what the hell am I going to talk to him about? Like all the yeah, good exactly. times we had on the set or, you know, whatever. And he said, no, you know, and so I, I went and I sat down with my date. And then, uh, the, you know, the theater hadn't gone dark yet and we're standing there. And I thought, you know what? You only go around once in life, carpe diem. So mm-hmm. I got up, went to the back of the theater and found Oliver back there holding court with a bunch of people. And uh, um, he was uh, he was kind of reeking, man. It looked like he'd been up for a long time. Right, stressed out about his movie. Yeah, I mean, probably. I'm sure he has, would, you, know, you know, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I stood there and waited for all these other people to d- sort of drift away, and I was finally Stone and I, you know, standing there facing mm-hmm. each other like a couple of gunslingers or whatever. And I go, "Hey," and he goes, "Hey." And he looks at me, and I look at him, and I said, uh, "Do you remember me?" And gets he shakes his head no no, no. <laughs> um, I said I'm Randall Johnson another sort of blank look you know I said I'm your co-writer <laughs> and then all of a sudden he goes oh uh, the light goes on you know oh man and he slaps me on the back and he said how the fuck are you man and uh, he said the critics are screwing us man we that you know they 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 need to see the movie with the people and he kind of gestured out all the <laughs> and you know he embraced me like this long lost brother and i thought golly man is it really is this is this is hollywood and this i hollywood. i thought man this is the the perfect ending to uh to a long strange trip it definitely is and i think you just captured everything that we wanted to talk about because i was going to ask you like you know in, in the in the premise of like um of storytelling that, that Joseph Campbell talks about is simply like, you know, all the challenges uh, upon um, entering the, 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 the first threshold. And then you have all these challenges that here, mm-hmm. the, the journey of the hero does. Mm-hmm. And then they have this um, moment of the inmost cave, which is like the darkest moment of the soul. And like you yeah. were talking about, this is, you were already experiencing it. And then um, that's when you start the record label. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then, but then you, f- uh, get past the f- that that major challenge and you're supposed to come back with this elixir um this uh, this series of knowledge or something mm-hmm. to bring back to the ordinary world mm-hmm. that's sort of the um the basic premise of just all general storytelling or all the the all storytelling for the the, the hero you know mm-hmm. so here you were mm-hmm. you had it you know so if you were to mm-hmm. give our listeners you know all but you know, none of them right now because I don't know. They don't <laughs> even know about this podcast yet. But sure. anyhow, but if you were to to bring back the elixir from this experience, is there any like one uh, little snippet of advice that you would want to partake? Well, it's hard to encapsulate it all into one little nifty. Uh, but you're a writer. Uh, you know how it is. You got to condense. Saying here, but you know, I mean, the the that's the heat of the kitchen. You know, so to speak, when you go and you're writing and you're working in at least this is the old paradigm now. I don't mm-hmm. think it's there much anymore. You're always at risk, you know, of being replaced. 
um, you you are replaceable. You're not irreplaceable in Hollywood. You know, you want to take as much effort as you can to be irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that uh, Hollywood is a machine. It's chewed up and spit out, you know, the likes of Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Faulkner, for God's sakes, uh, in yeah, addition to, uh, you know, any number of uh, other 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 great writers and talents. But, um, you know, you just uh, you can't take things personally. It's a gigantic machine that will devour things in, in its path with um you know, reckless egalitarianism. <laughs> How's that for a phrase? Wow. Um, so you do the best work you can and um, sure, make sure that you get paid, you have a good contract, you know. Um, but that's it, you know. Um, um, okay, so, you know, it wasn't exactly my vision. Well, you know, look, I yeah, came exactly. out of this, though, a richer person. I came out of this incredibly smarter in terms of how the business works. Um, I have friends who are still friends of mine. Yeah, you you didn't compromise your um, relationships. No, I didn't. I I felt I didn't anyway. Um, And, uh, you know, I was a piece of history, uh, you know, or very close to a piece of history, let's put it that way. And that was, you know, it was really, really tremendous. So, um, but I did learn to fight for my vision, you know, Mm -hmm. in a sense, even more so than before. Um, And... Uh, uh, but at the same time, you know, you do that, you're, there's, there's a certain amount of risk involved as well, you know? Um, so in a sense, you got to be judicious in terms of what you're going to fight for, what you would really choose to go to the mat for. Right. And that's a judgment call. That's a personal call that, uh, you know, it's just going to be up to you as an individual, but you know, it was, it is what it, what it is. I mean, I, again, at the time, I was I felt awful. It felt like I'd been, you know, failed. Yeah. failed blown the opportunity of a lifetime. How could I have possibly have done that? That well, was your darkest moment. Yeah. Your, and then your inmost cave that you had to Yeah, enter. and then subsequently, though, that script, Spielberg read it. Um, other, other producers read it. Um, I had, uh, I, I got my job on writing the, the Tesla story, you know, for for Warner Brothers, based hmm. on um, David Lynch's manager, who was producer on it. He he read that script and he said, "I knew Jim Morrison, and basically you turned an asshole into a guy that I really cared about." So <laughs> he's, you know, that was a job well done. That's what got me the gig, you know. Um, you know, Spielberg said, "Look, I, you know, I'm, I don't know anything about rock and roll, but you know, I'm really into this. So this is really cool. So you know, what do you know about Zorro?" Um, so and, and you we're know. gonna we're gonna keep that to the the next podcast. Sure, I can't believe, you know, it's just wealth wealth of stories. Oh crap! And, I guess well, you were I were yeah, gonna, my welcome, didn't I? No, 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 no. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna wrap it up for uh, our first episode of Portland Film Art. I have a, quite a bit of editing to do. We've spoken for like over two hours. Oh, how we geez. And yeah, normally, like, a podcast is like half hour, an hour. Yeah. <laughs> my so how time I, flies when you're drinking beer. But look how much content I have. Mm. So now I will mm-hmm. cut it up and uh, make it interesting. And now I have a few episodes. And then we still have to break up uh, another uh, podcast for the uh, independent film and business marketing. Yeah. Which I actually probably will talk in more depth about your record label. Because you ran a business, even independent as it was, there's still basic business, business principles, principles to that. 
that I think would be really fascinating to, to discuss and how don't spend your own money, kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, sure. But sure. anyway, uh, I think we're going to wrap it up okay. for our first. I don't even know how you say this first episode because I know that I'm going to have to add this up to a, a few episodes. Well, it's my bad for just probably no, going no, off no, no, on no, all no, these no. great, all these. Uh, you don't various, understand. You know, like, you know. People don't get this sort of opportunity to get this um, in depth and this um, this personable to to the story, mm. and people eat it up. And yeah. this is really just a favor to our friend Marty, who has just been <laughs> hounding me, like, "You, when is the next episode? I need to know what happens." <laughs> so this is uh, we forget we forget this is just the doors part of it, and then mm -hmm. there's a whole other story with the Mask of Zorro. And yeah. then you're moved to, yeah. to Portland. Mm, you so. know, Tales from the Crypt and all. Yeah, there's Tales lots from of... Tales from the Crypt. You know, it's all... Yeah. What was it? Uh, Sunset Boulevard? No, what was it? Sunset Strip. Sunset Strip. Yeah. Thank you. And there's a case of a, of a film sort of gone bad. You It'd know, be fascinating and, to and talk about for yeah, sure. So all that. Which so, you, you, sure. look, you look back, it's like it wasn't necessarily the worst film. It's just no, no. And actually, I've, I've had a number of people be very complimentary about it. But yeah. for me, it was a gem at the time. And it yeah. just got a lot got lost in translation on that one. Man. You know. And then but we're going to talk about you directing. That's what we're going to talk about oh. one day. So, you know what? I got okay. plenty more beers for you. One more that. time. I so uh, we're going to space it out here. So Randall will be a re reoccurring guest. And um, thank you for anybody. I, my goal is that there might be a few people listen to it, but like in six months from now, there'll be a ton of people who like have found this and be like, "Oh wow!" And then be much more. So well, it's digital, so it'll never be. It's be exist for a while. That's right. We hope. We hope. <laughs> so it's all good. All, all right. right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. We are. Thank you, Stillhouse. Oh, I know. It's very good. Yeah. And I have to pee like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> ¶¶